and you may be seated. I want you to know it is such a delight to see all of you here this morning. Uh, if you're new and we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is just a delight to have you with us this morning. Now, I want to tell you, when I, growing up as a kid, I grew up in central Montana, and uh, we didn't have much in our little ranching village, uh, but my mother, who had taught me to read at a very early age, uh, introduced me to a little library that was next to our volunteer fire department. Okay, it wasn't much. Um, there weren't a, a lot of books, but there were some. And uh, so kind of scouring through there, I made a discovery when I was young of the Hardy Boys, okay? Frank and Joe, okay? Frank and Joe Hardy, these were these teenage sleuths. And like they were really clever and they would get into all these kind of like really unique situations. And of course, there would always be a mystery. And uh, they only had three books in that library. And I read all three, but I was hooked. I mean, like, I love a good mystery. Eventually, though, I was able to get my hands on all 58 and to read all of them. And you always know no matter what, even though it looks like Joe and Frank, they're going to die, you knew that, you know, there's probably another one coming. I think somehow they make it. There was always 20 chapters, but it was awesome just to see how they were figuring things out. But after I finished The Hardy Boys, I was introduced to another sleuth, an English detective on a whole new level, a guy by the name of Sherlock Holmes. And I'll tell you what, this guy, I mean... He's fictitious, but he was based on a, on a surgeon who had amazing powers of observation, his powers of deduction and forensic science, and, and be able to take simply like some insignificant little clue and find that it was the key to the entire case. And I was just fascinated by this man and his skills of observation and his ability to use logic and draw the right conclusion You know, even today, some of the greatest crimes are solved by what seemingly seems so very insignificant. Some pollen, just a fiber, hair, an abrasion on a tree. They may look insignificant, and yet, why, it's the key of solving the entire crime and the entire case. This morning, I would like us to look at the case that Christians call Easter. And I would just like to ask the question, what do you see? I'm going to give you the backdrop. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter, John chapter 20, but let me give you the backdrop of all that has taken place. The scene takes place in Jerusalem and just outside it. Now, Jerusalem at this time was the Passover. It's about 2,000 years ago. The city of Jerusalem would be filled, swelling with uh, pilgrims that came from all over Israel and even some Gentiles that would come. It was estimated by scholars that were about 2 million people that were in Jerusalem for the Passover. And this was seemingly a Passover unlike any other because there was the entrance of this one named Jesus on Monday. People were declaring that he was the Messiah. Everyone was talking about Jesus. He was like electricity throughout Israel. He had powers. He had the ability to heal people and cast out demons. And he had wisdom that confound even the wisest. And everyone was talking about him. And when Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem, he makes it like no other. He actually rides on a donkey, which is so very reminiscent of King David, this royal one who also would ride a donkey. But when Jesus comes in, it wasn't as if he just made his way. 
Hundreds and hundreds, estimated thousands of people would line the two-mile path from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they were crying out, Hosanna, son of David. They were calling in the Messiah. They were taking these palm branches and putting them down in their clothes, their cloaks, and they're laying them for him, and he would come before him, and they were crying out that this one was the Messiah. I want you to know that Rome was on high alert. All the Roman soldiers under the authority of Pontius Pilate were taking this in very closely. It was already a dangerous time at Passover when the Jewish people were expecting or hoping for someone to overthrow Rome, but now they've got someone there yelling out and crying out, you are the king, the son of David. Now, the Jewish authorities absolutely hated this because this Jesus, why he was claiming and doing the works that only Messiah could do, he was confronting them in all of their false religion and all the rules and regulations and how they had missed it. And they wanted to put him to death. Their goal was to apprehend him, keep him, and wait for this Passover feast to pass over and everybody go back to their homes, and then they're going to kill him. Well, it just so happened that on Thursday night, right before the Passover of the Friday, that upcoming Friday, that Jesus was with his men and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they used this, this moment, One of Jesus' very own, Judas, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver to say, I I can tell you exactly where he's at. I'll lead you to him, and we can do this without a lot of fanfare. The Jewish leadership came with a whole contingent of Roman soldiers as if there was going to be some sort of big fight. And there they found Jesus in the garden, and they apprehended him. And they took him, bound him, and took him to some of their high priests that they kept rotating around. And they had a series of mock trials. They were illegal according to Jewish law. But that didn't matter because the law didn't matter. The only thing that mattered is that they were going to put an end to Jesus. They couldn't find anything wrong with him despite the fact that they tried. They beat him. They tried to create some sort of accusations that would stick, but nothing seemed to stick. But they wanted him dead, and they needed to do something quickly. And so very early in the morning, they take him to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, They get him out of bed. It's about 6 in the morning when they're doing this. Pilate is still asleep. They go to the praetorium. They summon the governor, and they we have got an insurrectionist, someone that's got to die and got to die quick. And they bring him Jesus before Pilate. Pilate can find nothing wrong with him as he examines him. It so happened that Herod, another governor, was in town for the Passover, sent him over there. Herod wanted to see Jesus for a long time. He found nothing There was nothing that he could find that was wrong with him. Certainly no sin, no breaking of law. Sent him back to Pilate. Pilate like, you know what? I'm just going to scourge him and release him. There's nothing wrong with this guy. He has done nothing. But the Jewish leadership would not have it. And so what they did is they put Pilate on notice that if you don't kill him, you are rebelling against Rome. This is a known insurrectionist. He's leading the people astray. And then... They started this chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate could see that he was doing no good. In fact, a riot seemed to be getting started. And so Pilate handed Jesus over to their will. He had him scourged by his Roman soldiers. And then he had that Jesus led away to be crucified outside of Jerusalem with two other criminals to do this in the morning. The Jews wanted to get this done before all the masses of people would wake up. And word would get out, but it was really too late because people were already gathering. 
And so Jesus was crucified on a Friday. That Friday afternoon, despite the torture that he had gone through, he yells out, it is finished while he's on the cross. And then he gave up his spirit. Roman soldiers needing to get him down because there was this plea to get the body of Jesus down because of the Passover, they didn't want to desecrate it. And Sabbath was coming. And so one of the Roman soldiers took a spear and lanced it up through his side and it pierced through his heart and out came blood and water, a medical indication that he had died. These were trained soldiers. They knew a dead person when they saw it. They hauled him down. There was a very wealthy man by the name of Joseph of Marathia. He requested from Pilate, the body of Jesus, and he received it. And he and another Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus wrapped Jesus' body in a 100 pounds of linen cloth, aloe, and myrrh. And this was the preparation for a body for burial. And Joseph of Arimathea, this wealthy man, had had a tomb outside of Jerusalem, recently finished for him, a tomb of a wealthy man, And he brought Jesus' body to that tomb and laid him on this table. Here he was, dead, Jesus, this so-called son of David, wrapped in 100 pounds, aloe, myrrh, linen cloth. A massive stone was rolled into the entrance of that tomb so that no one could actually ever get in, or for sure, no one could escape. The Jewish leaders, though, were like, you know what? This Jesus said that he's going to like rise again three days later. We want to make sure that no hoax is perpetrated on our people. And so we want to make sure that that tomb is secure. And so Pilate allowed them to have the Roman soldiers put a seal. They'd take a cord across that whole uh, circular rock, and they would put a Roman seal on it. To mess with that seal was to face the wrath of Rome. But they also convinced Pilate, saying, hey, listen, These guys are going to try to steal the body. So Pilate gave them a whole Roman guard, all these guards. He said, here, go. You make that tomb as secure as you can. Well, that was Friday night. There was Saturday, the Sabbath. Then coming into early Sunday morning. And this would be the very first opportunity for some of Jesus' followers to go and to anoint his body, to bring more myrrh, to bring spices, because... They had to counteract the decay. The stench would be getting pretty bad. And so that's what these women are doing. They fully expect that they're going to find the body of Jesus. And so take a look at the eyewitness account, John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So it's early Sunday morning. Here we have... Mary Magdalene. This is a a very significant woman in the Bible. She's referenced 14 times in the New Testament. She had an amazing love and devotion to Jesus, and it's well-founded. She is a leader of a group of women that during Jesus' earthly ministry supplied from their own resources finances to support this ministry of preaching, of healing, a public proclamation. And they followed Jesus wherever he went. Mary was apparently the leader of this group. And Mary had such a deep devotion to Jesus because Jesus had done so much for her. Mary Magdalene had had seven demons 
terrorizing her life, ruining her, making her wretched. But Jesus had freed her and released her, restored her dignity, gave her an identity in his love, a bond that was so tight. And so Mary, the leader of this, these women, they're like, we're going to the tomb. We're going to anoint his body. It most certainly will be there. These women, by the way, demonstrated an uncommon courage and devotion. They followed Jesus. When Jesus is being led to where he's going to be crucified and while he is dying, where the other, most of the other disciples seemingly are following at the fringes, watching way from a distance, do you know who's standing there at the foot of the cross who could care less what the Romans might do to them? It's these women. And these women watched him die. These women watched Joseph of Arimathea wrap that body. They watched him take it to the tomb. They knew exactly where it was. This is an uncommon devotion. And so Mary, Mary Magdalene, on the first day of the week, came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. This was not what she was expecting. Wait a second here. We're the Roman guards. What? That massive stone, how did it get moved up the hill? She, she apparently went ahead of the other women because they would need to convince those guards to move that stone so they could anoint that body. She goes, gets there first, and she cannot believe what she is seeing. And she makes this assumption. Someone, the, perhaps likely, the Jewish authorities, they have stolen the body of Jesus. And you want to see... The first response, look at verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. You see, the stone was moved away by an earthquake and an angel, the gospels tell us. And they made the conclusion that someone had stolen the body. Now, these other women, when they show up, they see an angel even appeared to them and said that this Jesus had, has risen. Well, they all eventually make their way back to the disciples, and they are just beyond themselves. Disciples who are like kind of waking up, and they're like, what? I mean, no, he's, he's dead. And like, no. Mary's saying, someone has stolen the body. They have done it. Likely the Jewish authorities, they've stolen the body. This makes no sense to them. This doesn't click. This doesn't connect. They're bewildered. By what's being said. And so finally, though, with this unexpected event, they've got to see for themselves. Now, before um, you're just like, oh, you know, Mary, Mary, Mary. Like, what in the world is she thinking? Before you just kind of write her off, I want you to put yourself in her sandals. How would you have seen this? Let's say um, you have a a dearly loved friend or a family member, and you were at their funeral at the graveside three days earlier. And so you come back three days, in three days, and, and you've got flowers with you, and as you make your way in an early morning, you all, you see all of a sudden like, wait, wait a second here, there's this big mound of dirt here. Whoa, wait, there's a coffin, and, and it's open, whoa. What conclusion would you draw? You'd draw a conclusion that someone took the body. And that's exactly what she sees. That's what she says. 
So they're reporting this. And so Peter and the other disciple, verse 3, they have got to go and take a look at this undeniable evidence. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Now, it seems to be that there was a rivalry among the apostles, okay? Um, For instance, you see it right here in black and white. Do you know how John refers to himself? He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. How well do you think that sat with the other guys? You know, like, hey, I just want you to know I am the disciple that Jesus loved. And then there's there's Peter. It's like, you know, like, you know, there's Peter. You just never know what he's going to do. But then there's me, the one that Jesus really likes, okay? That didn't set probably too well. Now, I'll tell you, the reason he referred to himself that way is because he was resting and rejoicing in just how well-loved he was by Jesus. But notice they also seem to be rather competitive. They start the race to the tomb together. You see that? Verse 3, they're going together. Uh, Verse 4, and John just happens to be not only really liked by Jesus, he happens to be really fast. And he gets in the tomb before Peter, okay? And he records that. It is right here in Holy Writ, right here in the Scriptures. And he gets there, you know, and he's, he looks, right? And, whoa, it takes, he can see, whoa, wrappings? And he's kind of waiting. And here's Peter, okay? You just got to imagine, you know, this big old fisherman, lots of muscle, probably not a great runner, but I want you to know his mind was racing. I mean, think of it for Peter, hearing this, Do you know just a few days earlier, remember he told Jesus, listen, you know what? These other guys, they will deny, they might deny you, but I, (laughs) you can count on me, I will never deny you. And yet, he did so three times, right? Well, remember, um, I mean, Peter was bold and brash. Remember when the Roman soldiers came with the Jewish leaders to apprehend Jesus? Do you know what Peter did? I mean, he saw this, this group of soldiers come. He's like, all right, game on. Pulls out his knife, and, he's going to, and he actually goes for the head of the slave of the high priest. Not super accurate. Whoosh, goes for the head, gets an ear. You remember that? Jesus heals that servant and told Peter, it's, it's time for you to put that away, okay? But then just, just a few hours later, there was a slave girl that was gathered with all of those that were watching these mock Jewish trials. And she goes, hey, you, speaking to Peter, you, you're with Jesus, right? Even your weird accent gives you away as a Galilean. And three different times, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. In fact, he ends up even swearing that he doesn't know him. And yet he's running to the tomb, now this, Now the body of Jesus has been stolen. What in the world? Now, when they get there, see, notice John's there. He's already caught his breath. And here he comes. Still, the light is just starting, and Peter shows up. He's breathing heavily. John is likely waiting in deference to Peter because Peter is the leader of the group of the disciples. And Peter just kind of barges and walks right into this tomb, stooping in, and here he is. And you can see in just the early morning light. And take a look what they see. 
Look at Peter, verse 6. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, this would be John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and he saw and believed. What did these men see? Well, I want you to think like Sherlock Holmes for a minute. What is the evidence? Well, the first thing they could see is that, whoa, that giant round stone that was in front of that tomb, it had been rolled uphill. Whoa, wait a second, the seal had been broken. There's the stone. The second thing that they would see is that, you know what? The Roman guards, they're not here. They would never abandon the post. They had a job to do. Wait a second. Wait, they are not here. Then they noticed this. You see that? In verse 6, they, they saw the linen wrappings lying there. But you know what? There's no body of Jesus. Jesus' body is gone, but the wrappings are there. And those wrappings, while those linen wrappings with the myrrh and aloe, you know, that... John tells us that uh, it was about 100 pounds in weight. It's kind of like this. Put this glove on. My hand is inside this glove, right? Those linen wrappings were like me taking my hand outside of this glove and removing it. And yet there is still the shape of the glove where my hand was. That's what it was like when they saw these wrappings. The myrrh and the aloes, they developed a resin. This would be almost like a cocoon. And yet, no body. And then, you may have missed this. But if you're a good detective, you most certainly wouldn't miss this detail because it's so highly significant. Look at verse 7. Maybe you've never even thought about this. See that? And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up, in a place by itself. The space cloth that would be used to hold the jaw together of someone that had been deceased, why, it was actually lying there, but it was rolled up neatly, precisely, in such a way that it couldn't be missed. And notice it was actually set in a place away from the linen wrappings. John and Peter, they're, they're taking all of this in and they're deeply perceiving what is actually taking place. Most certainly, this was not the work of grave robbers. I mean, think of it. And I know none of you would try to steal a body from a grave, but imagine if that's actually what you were going to do. Do you think that they would not only overpower those Roman soldiers, okay, be able to move that stone, but that they would somehow take the body of Jesus, unwrap him, 100 pounds, aloe, myrrh, take the body, got the body, take the face cloth, let's roll it up real nicely, set it aside, and then we got to rewrap this to make this cocoon so make it look like his body was in there. Does anybody think that that seems pretty rational? I'm pretty sure that they'd have several hours to do that. No, if you were going to steal the body, you would steal it all wrapped up. 
It would be far easier. And second of all, if there's truly a body in there and it's decaying, it's going to smell a whole lot better if you just take it as one whole package. And they're seeing this and they're perceiving that. You know, they, they were familiar with what it looked like to have a body that was wrapped up. You remember in John chapter 11, there was a man named Lazarus who had been dead four days. Remember in the, the awful stench that they were being warned about? And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And then when he did, he said, unbind him and let him go. Because, I mean, you would be wrapped up together. Do, does anybody really, honestly, now that you're thinking, think that Jesus was um, kind of like, well, he was almost dead. But actually, when he was in the tomb, he somehow kind of like Houdini kind of just slipped out of that and came back, you know, fully resuscitated and then kind of made it look like a resurrection and then uh, was able to push from, this would be an impossibility, but push from the inside of a tomb, roll the stone, hey, Roman guards, well, I'll take you on too, after already have been brutally tortured and on a cross. Does that really make any sense to anybody? Well, they're taking this all in. This is undeniable evidence. But then that leads to the unmistakable emphasis. I don't want you to miss this because this is at the very heart of the case. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb also entered and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Now, what is it that they already believed about Jesus. They actually already believed that he was the eternal son of God. They knew it. Peter confessed it. It had been affirmed. The miracles itself spoke the fact that he is the eternal son of God. So what is it that they believed? He believed that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. The only explanation to this cocoon of linen wrappings and the face cloth being wrapped so well and set aside was that indeed Jesus had just passed through that cloth and he was resurrected from the dead. Now, it's really interesting when you look at this. To see it in the Greek, all of a sudden it just kind of like comes alive because John is very intentional with the word saw. There is in the Greek language six different words for to see. Each has a little bit of nuance of difference. In verses 5 through 8, he uses three different words for to see. The first one, you find it in verse 5. Remember when John, he gets to the tomb first and he looks in. Do you see it? I want you to look at it. He's looking and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. This is just to see like with a general awareness. It's to perceive by sight. It's to kind of like look, take in a little data, and like, got it, Right? And we do this all the time. See it? Flowers, got it, got it. See this? Okay, picture, got it. And record it. But it's just a general awareness. The second word to see, you find in the very next verse, in chapter 20, verse 6, with Peter. And it says, Peter also came, following him, entered the tomb, and he saw. This word speaks of specific observance. It's to look carefully, to behold, It's not just to glance, get the information, but to like, okay, I see this, I see this, 
I'm observing this, and it's to take mental note. But the third word to see is found in verse 8. Remember? So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, they also entered, and he saw. This is the word to perceive the significance, to see from the heart. It is intelligent comprehension as to what does this mean. And for John, he saw and believed. You know, how you see in many ways determines how you live. And you know, we've got to stop right now. How, how is it that the disciples of Jesus didn't know that he was going to rise from the dead. I mean, clearly, they were thinking he was dead. They were shocked what, what these women had to say. These women, they, they went to the tomb. They were going to anoint the body of Jesus, right? They weren't expecting a resurrection. When the women showed up, they didn't say like, oh, uh, duh, he said he was going to rise from the dead. He did it. No, they ran to the tomb like, boy, we got to see this for ourselves. They were not expecting any resurrection. no. Far from it. How did they miss it? You know, at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, John chapter 2, he said in front of a great crowd, you destroy this body, and in three days, I will raise it up. Well, they had forgot about that. You know who didn't forget about it, by the way? Were the Jewish authorities. They locked onto that. That's why they requested that that grave be made secure. You seal it, and you put a guard in front of it. No way are we going to allow a hoax like this to be perpetrated among the people of Israel. But you know, on several occasions, Jesus told them, going to be mistreated, suffer, I'm going to die, buried, I'm going to rise again on the third day. Even on Thursday, just just a few days ago, he told them the exact same thing, going to die, going to be killed, I am going to be buried, I'm going to be raised on the third day, and we're going to catch up together in Galilee. But they just didn't get it. Look at verse 9. That's what's recorded here. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So what scripture did they miss? Well, you don't have to guess. Fifty days from this event... Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. Remember that? This fisherman, under God's Spirit, he gives his first message. And in his sermon, he quotes from Psalm 16, specifically verse 10, which says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Or like Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will see those who are brought into his family by faith. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Friends, this is what scriptures teach. And I don't want you to miss this because this is at the heart of Easter. Why does John believe Does John believe in the resurrection because he saw the resurrected Jesus? No. He believes on the basis of the evidence that he sees. And John is the first of millions upon millions of people who have not seen the resurrected Jesus, but believed in him and his resurrection. And I 
in, in that group, I have never personally seen the resurrected Jesus, but I believe on the basis of the evidence and the scriptures. And I just want to ask you, what will you do with the evidence of the tomb? I mean, there are significant implications of all the evidence that you see here. You can't just sit there and like, well, I don't know. I'm just going to forget about it. God is bringing this to your full attention. This is why you are here, so that you will understand that this evidence demands a verdict. I mean, these are amazing clues. This, is not, this, this scene doesn't speak of an afterthought, does it? Does this look like an impulsive event? Like just wrappings everywhere and face cloth torn? No, this looks like precision. This is intentional. You know, if the, let's just think about a few options here. If, let's say the disciples really had somehow overpowered the Roman guard, moved the stone, and uh, taken away the body of Jesus, okay, and somehow left all the wrappings and did that, that would take hours. It's an impossibility. I mean, you just couldn't do it. But if, if they had really done that, do you think that when they were going to face their own torture and death for this belief in this resurrected Jesus, do you think they're like, well, we know it's a hoax. We know we actually stole the body, and now huh, it's our turn to be crucified? They, would, they wouldn't hold to that story. Like, okay, 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 okay. All right, we stole the body, and we'll tell you where it is, okay? Or do you think um, that uh, the Jewish authorities had somebody steal the body of Jesus? You really think that was viable? And so then all of a sudden, the disciples, they're like, the body's gone. Here's all the wrappings. We certainly can't explain that. Well, you know what? We're going to start declaring that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. You know what they would have done? They'd probably let him go on for a little bit and get a pretty decent-sized crowd. And then then walk up to him and say, you boys are liars. And then they'd have the body of Jesus drug up and placed in front of him and said, look, here is his body. And this whole idea that Jesus was resuscitated, honestly, do you think someone who had been beat to the point of near death, then put to death on a cross, having a spear lanced through their heart and blood and water come out, buried and wrapped up in a hundred pounds of linen and myrrh and aloes? Really? Do you really think that Jesus not, wasn't really dead, injured, but he was able to kind of come back and do some really pretty amazing things. Absolutely not. There is only one conclusion this evidence points to, and that is Jesus. He literally passed through those linens, and he is indeed resurrected from the dead. This is intentional. This whole scene is all this evidence all points to one conclusion, and it shouldn't surprise us. Because all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God has promised, pictured, and prophesied that there would be a Messiah, one who would take away our sins, one who would do the works of God, one who would be eternal, an eternal king, who would have, never, who would ne- have no end, and one who would rise again. His body wouldn't undergo decay. And God does this because there is only one way that you and I can have relationship with him. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Remember what Jesus said, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, God is putting on display his character 
the fullness of all that he is by redeeming us and having Jesus die in our place and rise again to authenticate to the world, indeed, he is God and he is Savior and Lord. You know, all of this is written, though. All of this is taking place. All of this evidence, it's all meant for this one reason, that you will believe. In fact, that's how John ends, John chapter 20. You could look at it. Look at the final two verses. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, so why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. God wants us to put his, our faith in his word, to take him at his word. That's what faith is. You remember like the great explanation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, and that Christ was died and was buried, and he rose again on the third day, what? According to the scriptures. That is at the heart of Easter, that we would be like John and believe the truth, believe the evidence, and we would trust in Christ. Well, verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. They're going back to Jerusalem. John, think of John, believing in the resurrection of Jesus, having not seen him, just like so many of us. And when John goes back to the place that he's staying in Jerusalem for the Passover, do you know who's with him? You know who's waiting there? Mary. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? Mary is there, and apparently so was John. And Jesus gives this one directive, that John is to take care of Jesus' mother. And that's exactly what John did. And think of this. The first person that John will probably speak to is Jesus' mother to tell her, indeed, he is risen from the grave. Now, after this event, the scriptures record that at at least 10 different times, Jesus then began making physical resurrection appearances to people. John records that the very first one is Mary, Mary Magdalene. But, you know, all of these appearances that he makes are just to once again reinforce what the scriptures taught. It is promised and prophesied that he must die and rise again, and indeed he has. I just would like to ask, how is your eyesight? What are you seeing this Easter? This week I had to go to the eye doctor. It had been a while with the pandemic. I hadn't actually had my eyes checked in a while. And I really don't like going to the eye doctor. It's frankly embarrassing, okay, because my vision is terrible. So I've memorized the first couple lines on the chart, okay? You know, you, you got there, and there's this big black blob. I want you to know that it's letter E, okay? And I know that, and I will tell them that, okay? But, you know, they're very helpful for me. You know, with glasses and contacts, my, I can see really well. In fact, I can see at least the first five rows here, you know? I'm, I'm doing good. And you probably know this. You know, like, I see a lot of you wearing, like, glasses. And, and some of you, I'm sure, have contacts, and that allows you to have a lot of clarity with your vision, right? Without those, why, I wouldn't be able to see very well, and neither would you. And when it comes to Jesus Christ and his resurrection, how well do you see? You know what God has given us so that we can see with utter clarity? He has given us his scriptures. He has given us 
the evidence. He has given us his Holy Spirit to just hone in so we see with absolute clarity. And he's given us the testimony of millions and millions of people that declare and will willing to die for. They're putting all their hope in that Jesus is alive, that Christ has risen from the grave. So how well are you seeing? Do you see the reality of your sin? Do you see the evidence that is found in the tomb? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Remember those three uh, words for to see? Which one are you? What will you do with the evidence of the tomb? Are you seeing like in verse 5 where you like see with a, a general awareness? Like, whoop, got it. There are people like that here. You're like, yeah, you know, Jesus, this is Easter, something about him dying on a cross, and then he, he apparently rose again. That's it. There are so many people like that. They have just a general awareness, but it means really nothing to them. And you know that, you know, we all have this God-shaped void in our life, so what happens is you just will fill your life with anything but him. It'll be career, entertainment, that doesn't work for you. You'll get exotic. You'll try drugs. You'll, you'll fill yourself up with just entertainment. It'll, it'll be something, immorality, because you just have a general awareness. Maybe you're here and uh, you actually have specific observance, kind of like Peter. He's like, oh, man, fact, fact, fact. I see this, this, this. I'm sure there's lots of people here that you know all the facts about his death and his resurrection, some of you actually could, like, I even know where it's at in the Bible. I could show you. This is what it says. These are the facts. But here's the catch. Those facts are not met with faith. You know, but you refuse to believe what the facts show. You need to know that despite the fact that you know the story, and you could tell it, if you haven't come to a place of faith in Christ and his resurrection, I got news for you. You are still in your sins. You are separated from God. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about you knowing the story. It's about do you believe in Christ and his resurrection? Which leads us to the third third, uh, word to see, to perceive the significance. Like John, he saw. He saw with the heart. He knew what this meant, and he believed. If that's you, friends, you need to know. You are forgiven of your sins because you are believing in Christ. You have eternal relationship with him. When you die, you will be with him forever. He is the source of your life. And so I would just like to ask, how well do you see? Our response to Jesus Christ is the most important reality in our lives. So friends, remember this. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Do you know that? Christ is risen Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord.